Hey everybody, welcome on the Lights on Data show. My name is George Rican, your host today, and this is Ryan Yackel, CMO and growth leader, IBM DataBand. Welcome, Ryan. What's up, George? What's going on, man? Hey, I'm really excited to be talking about the five steps to achieve proactive data observability and to do so over beers. Yes, this is this is a dangerous thing because it's 11 a.m. where I am. <laughs> you have it better than me, my friend. It's 8 a.m. over here, so yeah. it's probably the earliest I've ever had beers in my life, so we'll see how yes. it is. But again, we, we just need to taste them, right? And yeah, we're just going to be tasting these guys. We're not going to be going crazy here. And I have my beer set up here. We're going to go over the five steps, but we're going to pair them with the first one will be with the lager. Then we're going to have a wheat beer. Then we're going to have a pale ale. We're going to step into the IPA, love it or hate it. And we're going to end with a sour. And the same could be said about the sour. You either love it or hate it. But anyways, yeah. we're going to have some like fun commentary. We're going to learn some new things. Let us know what your favorite beer is. And I know, Ryan, you'll do the same. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this is all just, this is all meant to be fun because... I know a lot of people get on webinars or webcasts or podcasts. You probably hear the same thing over and over again. Hey, why not talk about some data topics over beer? Fun little hangout. Sounds good. Let's set that stage first and let's talk what is data observability because there is some confusion at times on what it represents. Yeah, so data observability is relatively new category within the data space, right? So if you think about what Datadog and companies like Instana New Relic do for the software reliability engineer or a DevOps engineer. They're basically looking at all of the cloud architecture, the microservices, your applications that are in production, right? And they're telling you through trace logs and metrics and root cause analysis, hey, these are things that are broke. You should go fix them. And it, it's always it has this always on mentality to detecting software and software quality and reliability issues, right? So if you take that same concept and apply it to data pipelines and data sets, that's what data observability is. So a lot of companies out there, they're doing this now. Databand, obviously, is part of IBM now, is one of the leading companies out there. Other companies like Monte Carlo, Excel Data, the guy, there's a lot of other vendors in the space. And where Databand kind of sets itself aside is that we do a more of a proactive and continuous approach to data observability rather than just looking at your warehouse. We're looking at your data pipelines, your data that's in transit, through things like maybe Apache Airflow pipelines or Spark processes. We're telling you when things are breaking immediately in real time before it actually gets to that end state to be in the consumption layer. So in a nutshell, that's what data observability is. We're all about helping data engineers and data platform teams detect earlier. So detect those data instances earlier and resolve them faster so they can meet their data SLAs with the consumers on the, on the far end. Beautiful. On that note, let's crack open a first beer. And right. I have the lager here. I try to stay local as much as possible with, with these beers. And this one is from Okanagan Springs for me. Yeah, let's let's see how it is. So right. I don't know where that is, but I'm from Georgia. And this, is, this beer is from, I think it's from Milwaukee. But I'm also starting out very responsible, George. I have a Bush non-alcoholic lager that I'm starting out with at 11 a.m. Okay. <laughs> Everyone, now you see why Ryan is much smarter than I am. <laughs> this one's actually very good. I know a lot of people out there, if they don't like alcohol or have an allergic reaction to it or just don't really care for it, but yep. they like a lot of, like they like the taste of beer. That's me for the most part. Cheers, mate. Cheers. This beer is actually very good. It tastes 
just like beer, like a very light lager beer, Pilsner nice. lager beer. So you get all the same taste that you would get. You can drink this at eight o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning. doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Mm. Yeah. I got to tell you, like mine is, has this like clean, crisp characteristic and that's why I think it's it makes it great for pairing it with that initial stage where you want everything to be set up correctly and yep. run smoothly. Yep. Hence, what, what is that first step, uh, Ryan? So when you're looking at data observability, the first thing we like to tell people is there's different stages that you can get to. And the first thing we like to do is we like to tell people you've got to be able to detect as left as possible, meaning to the source data, as possible. And what that usually means is you're going to be connecting into a pipeline orchestration tool or ingestion tool like Apache Airflow or uh, even IBM Data Stage, something like that, a Python pipeline. And the first thing you got to do is understand, okay, is this pipeline even executing? Is it even running? Is it, what's the state of this actual pipeline? And so there's a lot of times where there's, you, you've got customers that have gone from hundreds to thousands of different pipelines that they, they've set up. And they will have no idea that maybe a pipeline was down or wasn't even executing or had stopped until it's way too late. And so a common thing we'll hear uh, a real estate company that we work with, a software company is basically saying, hey, we can't wait for our consumers to tell us that a pipeline was down uh, when we had no idea, that if you, even if it was, right? Mm. So keeping track of if you have a few pipelines, then observability solution probably won't be an issue for you. But when you start to scale, and you need that solution that's going to go across all of your different pipelines to basically be a thousand different cameras. It's looking to see when things are going wrong and the pipeline state, you know, whether it's moving or not moving or it stops or there's a problem with it. That's like your first step. It's very much like a train, right? So you get on that train. Is the train going from Vancouver to Georgia? Okay. Yeah. Is the train moving or is it stopped or is it stalled? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be moving. I don't know about you, sometimes drinking beer gives me the hiccups. And so from your experience, what are some of those most common hiccups encountered during the, that first crucial steps, that pipeline execution? And how can IBM Data Band really help alleviate them? I think the first steps are when you get to pipeline execution, it's not just looking at, and we'll get to some of these next steps later on, but it's not just looking at, did something run or not run or is it stopped? That's like, when I, when we talk to people, they'll say, we have some monitoring already set up for that. So, yeah, like that's, I totally agree with you. You should have some type of monitoring to let the lights on or off. But what they don't do a lot of times is they're, they don't figure out what are the most critical pipelines that you need to make sure are always going on. Outside of just setting up your process of saying, okay, I want to have a monitor monitoring solution that knows if pipelines are actually executing or not. I also want to make sure I put criticality against these different pipelines to make sure that if a pipeline does go down, it either is a low severity, medium severity, high severity, critical severity, because not all pipelines are treated the same, right? Sometimes I want to get woken up in the middle of the night. There's a critical sales DAG that's gone down. I want to make sure that I need to you know, get that up and running as soon as possible. But if there's something else, it's not something that maybe is less of a priority for business criticality, then I don't need to have critical alerts set up for every single one of these. And so what Dataman does is help you isolate the noise when it comes to all the different alerting you can set up within not just pipeline states, but other things we'll talk about later on. 
and uh, alerting the right groups at the right time with the right severity around, hey, this is something you should be paying attention to, or okay, it's an issue, but you don't need to fix it right away. Because that's one of the big things we get uh, told is that they feel like they're constantly firefighting issues, the data platform mm-hmm. and engineering teams, and they don't have, they can't, they can't uh, address every single alarm that's going off. Pedro here is is chiming in, and he's mentioning that you need to architect the data operability in your pipelines and ETL processes and start capturing that metadata. So you got to do that early on. Yeah, that's what, and that's what, that's what most of these observability tools do is that they they tie into that metadata to do the type of alerting and triaging that you would need. But yeah, I totally agree with that. All right. Yeah, I have a, a fun fact for you. So logger, while we're drinking right now, apparently it's a German word for storage. And it oh. just reflects that longer fermentation process that it undergoes in comparison to other beers too. So there you go. It's a process known as lagering. And you kind of Storage like lagering? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down with that. So <laughs> they just leave it there. It ferments and we get what we have. This like nice, clean, crisp taste. Cool. There you go. Yeah. And it's the, the, one of the most uh, popular beer styles too. And oh, it yeah. really yeah. dominates the global market like Budweiser, Heineken. They're well-known yep. loggers. Loggers and pilsners, man, which apparently are harder to, to make. I didn't know this. Somebody told me this recently. Oh, yeah. Maybe we should, I should wait till we get to the IPA section. But they're basically saying the reason why it was harder to make than something like an IPA. We'll t- we can talk about that when we get to there. But I, I had no idea. Cool. Okay. We're all learning as we, we go along in all these different fields. And I, I love it how they just combine and they mesh together. Yeah. All right. So for the next one, we're going to try the wheat beer. And actually, this one, at least for me, it's not a local one. And that was a little bit on on purpose. And it's because this beer, this wheat beer, it's what got me into wheat beers. And it's this German beer called the Erdinger. Okay. So it's in a show, bottle. Show a picture of that. Let me see the picture of that. I think I've had that before. Yeah. I think I've had that before. Yeah. Um, mine is called Moon People. And this is from Jekyll. This is uh, a uh, pretty pretty famous beer, I would say, in Georgia, North Georgia area, Alpharetta, Georgia area. It's it's made, I think it's made off of a play on Jekyll Island, which is a island off the coast of, of the Atlantic near Georgia. So it's good. I, I, wheat beers are always like, for what I would say to people is it's always like the thing that the beer that I always tell people to to try if they don't like the taste of beer. Like my wife does not like Pilsners, lagers, IPAs, things like that. Yeah. But she same, loves wheat same. beers for whatever reason. She loves wheat beers and she likes coffee a lot too. So she'll like a stout or like a porter. Or oh, yeah. Nice. Cheers. That was good. This has got a, a big mm. coriander on the thing there, the can there. And it definitely tastes. I just started tangerine. It has oh, yeah. a lot of tangerine flavor to it. So it's tangerine wheat beer. Nice. Yeah, and it, like traditionally, I've, I've noticed that they also include like spices like coriander, like I mentioned, or yeah. like an orange yeah. peel or something citrusy. Yep. And it gives it a nice flavor. It's a nice crisp. And apparently the wheat beers often contain a higher percentage of wheat malt compared to the uh, barley malt found in the other beers, like the mm. lager that we just had. Yeah. And that's why we're having this cloudy appearance and yep. makes it maybe a little bit more like light, airy mouthfeel. Yeah, Blue Moon was my first ever wheat beer. Oh yeah, um, which is it's a good one. But I remember going to 
for my 21st birthday, I went over to um, uh, Germany with my dad and obviously German beers, you know, where, where it all is. And so I had the first time I had a real German beer from the, the drought. And uh, I was like, oh, whoa, this tastes a lot different. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I like this one better. I was like, this is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. It's uh, it, it's like my go-to beer. Yeah. Not this particular brand, but just like with beer in, in general. Yeah, it's if great, I, for if the, I don't know. great for a summer day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sitting on a patio, enjoying the sun. Beautiful. A lot of great memories happened. And oh, I also learned that with beer also means white beer in Dutch or Flemish. Referring again back to that, it's pale, cloudy appearance. So there you go. So it's, I mentioned, like we've just discovered, it's often light, yet it's like full of those subtle complexities. And I think that can really mirror the the necessary patience and detailed attention that are needed to monitor and manage the data pipeline latency effectively. And that's the second step, pipeline latency. Yeah. So pipeline latency is, this is the one where we start getting into, I think the power of observability where it really shows. Whereas let's say something like, Hey, I want to monitor the the train that's left the station, whether it's moving or not. This is really monitoring any anomalies that are going on within the duration of that pipeline. And so one of the things that, and this is where I, I think data band shines really well is the fact that what we do is we alert you when you set certain thresholds for the way a pipeline should be, should act and should mm-hmm. appear. And then we alert you on any anomalies that go outside of it as the pipeline's actually running, not after the pipeline completes. And so an example of this would be like, hey, we had a bunch of, a lot of our pipelines, for example, they run and we know that some of these pipelines complete in five minutes or six minutes, whatever it is, right? What happens when it gets to seven, eight, seven minutes, eight minutes, nine minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, right? That's a problem because now we're having a, an issue with the data delivery and how how fast it's moving through that pipeline. And if we have maybe some resource problems. And so one of the things that our customers use data man for is to say, hey, if I have a bunch of resources that are being allocated, let's say to a job or a pipeline, and I'm configuring that in the cloud and I'm putting like a t-shirt size next to that and, and putting resources against that. The only way I would know, a lot of times, the only way I'd know if I need to increase those resources is based off of how that throughput of that data. And so a lot of times what will happen is you'll have, we'll have, we'll use that data of pipeline latency to inform how you need to change your resources against that pipeline. So if you see that, let's say your recent, the amount of data going into that pipeline keeps going up and your pipeline mm-hmm. gets slower and slower. Okay. That's a problem with your resources. Possibly you need to upgrade the amount of power that your the compute power you're putting into that pipeline. So you can get that throughput to be quicker. So that's where pipeline latency really comes into play. It's it's a way to say, yeah, the train's moving, but how fast is it moving? And we need to make sure it gets to the final destination right on time. Nice. And can you set up some checks to say, hey, if it goes slower than this, give me an alert so I can take a look and resolve it? Yeah, for sure. And again, a lot of times when people talk about observability, it's it's not just the fact that we're giving you all this data. The, the the power is we're giving all this data, but then we're telling you like like what the problem is and we're alerting you more importantly like that there is a problem and and getting it to the right person. And so you can set up things that are greater than or equal to or you can use the anomaly detection that uses some ML capabilities that looks back at all your different pipelines and says, this is how that pipeline should behave based off of mm-hmm. 15 runs, 50 runs, whatever. If you've made some adjustments, 
-hmm. And then it's going to tell you like how much the sensitivity you want to factor into the alerting. So if you want it to be less sensitive or more sensitive based off that, then the anomaly detection will kick in depending on how you set that sensitivity. So just like you said, yeah, it's something you can definitely do with data band. And if you don't do it, if you don't address it, what are some of the potential impacts of pipeline latency on the business's data-driven decisions? The big one's going to be your data SLAs. So if you have a certain time of when you're delivering and you have that we're going to be delivering these, this data at this particular time within this particular range and it doesn't get there, then that's a breach in your data SLA. That's a problem. Mm. It could be an issue where you just never, ever get the data in general because possibly you see the pipelines running, right? But if it's gone on for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, and you never know that there's a, a problem with the actual duration, then the data may never get it may never even reach there, or you may have to redo it all over again. So that's an area where like the downstream impacts, whoever's consuming that data at the end, analysts, scientists, or even a data product, if it's not getting there on time, then there's a problem. Got it. Got it. No, thank you so much for yeah, putting the light on this as usual. And are there any tips on how organizations can be proactively addressing those issues and without compromising data quality? Because I think a lot of people are complaining that, hey, one has got to give and I got to choose one or the other. And it's not always the case. Right. Yeah. For us, this is where observability comes in. Like for us, what we're doing is we're just trying to make sure that the data engineering and platform teams, for the most part, are able to deliver their data on time with the most accurate precision that they can, right? And so for us, what we're always trying to do is say, hey, if you have a data SLA that's in place, like the tips and tricks for this would be have like very specific conversations about what those data SLAs are and then factor those into the data band platform to then set up these alerts and set up this anomaly detection before you are committing to all of these data SLAs that you're going to be signing up for. So I think a lot of times what happened is people sign up for an agreement without even knowing if they can track that agreement. Talk about the agreement first, then go back, put it into, do some tests around uh, what you can do. Um, you know, in our solution, we have a way to do SLA uh, dashboarding. So you can set up certain dashboards that go back to this particular uh, issue that we're talking about and have alerts set up and, and visualize them on a dashboard so that you can always know exactly when these data SLAs are possibly in breach. And then you can go back and say, okay, now we have a good idea of what we can deliver and with the right amount of quality, like what you said. Now let's go back and, and discuss what we're going to sign up for and have it tracked within the system. Nice. Okay, let's uh, take care of our latency here and uh, move Ooh. on to the third beer. So this one is a pale ale. Uh, I only found it in a toll can, but it's from a very nice brewery here. Uh, they always have these like steampunk designs. Ooh, it's nice. Steamworks, yeah. Mine is, my design may have you slightly beat. I have a dinosaur on mine. Oh, I love the dinosaur. (laughs) I've had that one before. Yeah, this is, what is this guy from? Let me see where he's from. Uh, Topping Goliath Brewing Co. So that's where they're from, Iowa. Interesting. Single hop, pale ale, citrus, balanced beer, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All right. Nice. Hey, yeah. I can smell the hops. We're getting into the hop territory here. Right, we're getting into the hop territory. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. And uh, by the way, that's made. Uh, it's you're getting that hoppy flavor 
by adding those hops in like just at different stages of brewing. And of course, the quantity can really differ depending on the brand. And that would influence that flavor, that aroma, that bitterness of the beer. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Good. I like that. Yeah. I'm not. What a... is everyone's favorite beer, by the way? I'm interested to know. Like, is anyone yeah, saying anything? What their favorite beers are? Yeah, let us know, guys. There you go. I think Rajat seems to know about uh, the dinosaur too. Oh, James is mentioning that his favorite beer is the Puka beer. Puka. Puka beer. Puka beer. What is that? <laughs> I can't tell if he's uh, trolling us saying puka beer he isn't like beer. <laughs> <sighs> All right. What comments coming in? Actually, he didn't have beer as we did. And he's asking a great question here. Can you please shed light on the impact of requirements gathering to data visibility in a data pipeline? Requirements gathering is something most data professionals don't talk about. Okay, let me read this again. Impact of requirements gathering to data observability. Let me ask him a question. What he means by requirements gathering, what types of requirements? Can you be more specific on what he means by requirements, maybe? Yeah, and it could be on the technical requirements or maybe even more the business requirements. What are you trying to achieve once the data goes through at the end of the pipeline? And then do you need to take those into considerations when you're designing that data pipeline in the first place, but also all the data visibility aspects of it. What do you need to monitor? For example, if maybe a requirement needs to be like Uber needs to know right away that where that taxi is going to be, where that car yeah. is going to arrive and they need instant information. Of course, that latency aspect is in the milliseconds for them. So that would be a requirement. I would assume that comes out of the requirement gathering. Yeah, I can speak to like when people come to us and they say like when people come to us and they say they tell us like what, what, why are they even looking at an observability solution? It really comes down to the requirements necessarily for the pipeline and what the pipeline is doing isn't mm -hmm. necessarily what we talk to them a lot about. At the end of the day, they're pushing data, right? They're mm -hmm. pushing data and it's got to go from one end to the other in a reliable fashion and get to where it needs to be consumed uh, in a correct way. And so when people come to us and they say, hey, I think I have, I need an observability problem. One is to deal with the scale of the pipelines they have. So we had talked about if you're in the hundreds to thousands, you're possibly looking at something to monitor across those. We're talking about the types of technologies that they're interacting with. So they're saying things like, hey, we have Python or Scala code that we're using. We are using Airflow hosted solution or even doing it ourselves pushing stuff into Databricks and, and then possibly over into Snowflake. All these types of things are just things that are, they're fit around their technology stack and where the pipelines are eventually pushing that data to. And then it gets into really two areas that, and this is where I, I think the core area of the requirements of where you would want observability is really within these two different types of areas. One is this data in transit observability and one is the data at rest observability. There's a lot of people, a lot of vendors out there that do the data at rest observability, which is, mm -hmm. hey, once the data lands in my Snowflake table, I want to do some SQL checks against this and compare some things and see if it's okay. That type of observability is very similar to a lot of traditional data quality solutions that are out there today. 
And you'll notice there's a, that's why there's a lot of, maybe there's possibly uh, some issues with people even looking at observability because a lot of times people say, well, doesn't traditional data quality solutions already do that? Just doing checks within my warehouse to make sure the quality looks good, it's correct, it's complete, it's consistent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where the observability really comes into play, which is more on the left side of the equation and where the requirement would be very specific is the data in transit. So the data in transit area is really looking at what we talked about earlier, which is we want to tie into these different pipelines that are pushing the data and, and, and detect issues and instance data set issues like we'll talk about here in a minute as the pipeline's executing within those data sets before it actually reaches a table uh, to be consumed. Because if it gets to the table, then we think that, hey, it's almost at a point where it's a little bit too late. Very similar to the same issues that go on with software delivery. It's I used to work in software testing and DevOps development lifecycle. And one of the things that we always talked about was you had to shift left your quality, shift left your detection so that you don't go through all these rounds of integration testing, sorry, unit testing, integration testing. And then when it gets to functional testing, there's all these other bugs and issues you never found. And that's like way too late in the delivery process. That could delay your deliveries or it could to result into a production issue. And so a lot of the requirements that we are, are sorting through with, I think with customers in their particular pipelines that they're running is to say, hey, if management can see a clear line of sight to be detecting data instance before they impact your business, then that's a worthwhile investment. In observability. And that's a great segue to, to the third step on data sanity. And that's the reason why I paired it with the PLAL too, is at least mine, Ryan, as I mentioned, I feel it has this balance between that flavor, aroma, the bitterness of it all. And I feel that really symbolizes that that balanced approach that's needed to maintain data sanity, taking into account the schema and the correctness of it, and really ensuring data remains accurate throughout the pipeline. Yep. So can you just elaborate a little bit more about that importance of maintaining data sanity and how it really ties into achieving reliable insights from your data analytics or whatever the, the end result there uh, might need to be. Yeah. If your pipeline's running and it's running on time, great. That was the first two steps. Second step is, okay, the data sets that were inside that pipeline, did they actually end up in the correct formats that we were expecting? We had a, a sports uh, a customer of ours, a software company recently that was talking about how they're sent over schemas or had a schema change through an API that they're pulling in through their ingestion layer. And they had no idea that schema had changed. The data came in fine, but the schema on that data, they didn't realize it changed. And so they pushed it all the way through to be consumed by table or eventually in the hands of analytics or ML project or wherever it was. But, and they had no idea that actually was a problem. And so what observability does is if you can tie into that metadata that's around the schema, mm -hmm. and you can know that, hey, that schema looks like one, two, three, four, and four up, four down when it comes to columns and rows. And oh, lo and behold, there was a five that got put in there and you weren't expecting an additional column or additional row. It'll alert you on, hey, there was a schema change that actually occurred here. So it's really, when it gets to this level, you're really getting in the weeds of the actual data itself. And you're trying to detect the undetectable because I don't know how many times you probably say, people will say, hey, we can't control third-party data. We can't control what they send us. You can't control it necessarily, but you can detect it 
any issues that may occur so that you're not passing down this data that is, is, is not going to be correct. So that's where Sandy really comes in. It's looking at the data itself and also the schema that's a part of it to understand what's going on and, and, and not hand over something that can't be used. So with time, data quality can really decrease if you're not taking care of it, depending on the different processes that it interacts with, the different actors that it interacts with, it can really become corrupted, degraded. How can organizations really implement some safeguards to prevent that data corruption and degradation? Safeguards for sure is not just tying into the pipelines itself, but tying into data quality checks. And so up until this point, we've been talking about pretty much putting in certain things into the metadata around your pipeline. This is tying into the metadata that's around your, the actual data itself within when the data is set. So this is where you, you really have the power to look into a data set within a pipeline, extract that metadata, and then put some type of alerting around it that would be around more of a sanity check as the data is in motion. So mm-hmm. we would, that's what we would tell people. This is like a third, like we're getting up into the, the third part of like where uh, maturity would be for a lot of these organizations. A lot of times they may have a traditional data quality tool that would do this for them mm-hmm. um, at a bigger company possibly. So for example, for us, and I'll talk about how we integrate with other solutions as well, but IBM Knowledge Catalog is a solution, data quality solution, data access solution is more of a catalog solution for a lot of more granular levels of data quality at the schema level. But that's why I think you see a lot of observability companies out there partnering with a lot of catalog solutions now. So anytime somebody says that observability does everything end to end, always be wary of that because the it doesn't. Just like all, mm-hmm. all, all, a lot of tools don't do everything end to end, there's a reason why you have a lot of observability, data quality, data cataloging tools coming together as a uniform solution. Very nice. And like you mentioned, it, it, the data quality aspect, it's way beyond just the data pipeline itself. Yeah. And you really need that balanced data management piece in place. Overall, you need data governance and all the right all the right methodologies there to adopt. By the way, to your question of favorite beers, Lelo Honolo is mentioning that his favorite beer is the Asahi. Ooh, which is really yeah. a pairing with sushi, right? Oh yeah, no, I love that one. The, the reason I like that one is because it's super dry. Yeah. It's, and did you know? I didn't know this. Uh, this is a, this is a fun fact. That's actually an Italian beer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was at a sushi restaurant, and the guy told me that, and I was like, he's like, look at the bottle. I was like, oh. <laughs> it's no Italian way. Beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta check that out. I'll actually be having sushi later on today, so I'm going to make sure to order that if I can after these five beer tastings. But yeah, uh, yeah I got to check that out. That's, well, that's, I'm, I'm I could be giving you misinformation, but that guy told me that and I looked at the bottle and it said it. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> my, my reality just changed. And that's also a lager. And so no yeah. surprise there, that's yeah. people's favorite beer. It's lager and it's made with rice and out of like yeah. rice, barley and stuff. There you go. And Kate is asking, what's the best beer? Best beer, Kate. I don't know if we can say a best beer. That's uh, what's better, like our Python discussion. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> what's better, Mage or Airflow, right? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. No, for me, like my it, beer it all depends on, I think, the situation that you're in. I don't like to drink stouts when it's a summer day, obviously. Mm. And I like to drink, like we were talking about this, like sushi. We like to drink Italian beers, apparently, when we're drinking, su- when we're eating sushi now. 
but probably my favorite beer is probably probably a, a scottish ale or a stout that's probably my favorite but i don't drink those all the time it's just too much all right i'm curious how you're gonna feel about the next beer that we're gonna have uh, Ooh, because that's IPA. the ipa and mine is actually from the capital of the province i'm in so it's from okay. victoria there you go hold on this is this mine is slow pour and Ooh. this is from nice design that's cool design yeah it's got a uh, like a cicada i think that's on top of there oh that's what it, it is a cicada so cicadas are and it's got a really cool lamp like a oh yeah on the outside yeah so cicadas are if, if anybody's been in the south cicadas are in these like uh, bugs that are like insanely chirpy so they they sound like crickets but they're not crickets and it's actually like a calming sound that you'll hear in the south mm. during in the summertime springtime and it's is just it more at night yeah they always come out at nighttime and so what's funny is this is from georgia i believe yeah atlanta yeah yeah so it's from georgia so one of the things that was is really crazy about this is, do you remember when, I don't know if you remember this, but a while back there was like the, what's the time when there's like a full, is it a lunar eclipse when the moon goes in front of the sun or is that a solar eclipse? Solar eclipse. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Solar eclipse. Yeah. We were all outside in Atlanta watching the, the solar eclipse happen. And what you'll see, it, what you start to hear the cicadas, they start to come out. Because they think it's nighttime when the moon is passing over the sun. So you hear them, they come out, they came out for 30 minutes or however long that lasts. And then they went back. So it was like this crazy thing in nature where they were recognizing that, oh, it's time to start our chirping or whatever at nighttime. And then they went went away. It was wild. It was like really crazy. Yeah. Cheers to the story. Thanks for sharing. Cheers. Okay, so also the thing I was going to mention about IPAs, mm-hmm. we uh, didn't really get to this, but I heard that IPAs are a lot easier to brew than like a Pilsner or a lager because they, you can be, because they have a little bit higher of alcohol content and there's more stuff that goes into it. Yeah. And he was, like, I was talking to this guy at a brewery and he was basically saying, yeah, the reason why IPAs are made is because they had a higher alcohol content that could be transported in barrels when they're in transit and they wouldn't go bad because the, the right. alcohol basically kept it from uh, going bad or whatever it was. And he was like, yeah, if you ever, if you, if you ever try to like actually brew a Pilsner or a lager, he's like, it's very hard. Like it's very hard to do. It's because it's a consistent taste. If you pick it up and you drink it, that's what you're getting. And it should be getting that. Whereas an IPA, it's got a bunch of stuff going on in it. There were a lot of times people like IPAs, they'll drink them, but a lot of them, like they can't, it's not like they have a super, you know, def- definitive thing in mind of what it means that this IPA is different than the other IPA. But they know for a fact that they were to pull up a drink, a lager, Budweiser, whatever, they know mm-hmm. what Budweiser tastes like, right? And mm-hmm. they'll know if it tastes bad right away. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah, I-, I knew about that as well. That really helped with the longer voyage to when the British were importing beer into India too. And by the way, yeah, let me know if it, anybody's like chiming in from India right now. Let me know if you have IPAs there. Apparently, that's why and where it originated. And also helped with uh, just the hotness of it all and the temperature in India just for them to last longer 
with that higher temperature uh, in the barrel. So there you go. And uh, Kingsley is doing a Corona Extra. Which, oh, yeah. What I've heard, Kingsley, apparently it's like the most sold beer brand in the world. Like even higher than Budweiser and Heineken. Hold on one second. I got to help my daughter get some chips down. Yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries. I'll talk about the IPA some more because it really spawned this culture of hopheads. And I was actually wondering if Ryan was, but it doesn't seem like he is. And there are a lot of people that kind of crave that bold, bitter flavors and the complex aroma that come with the generous use of hops because they can be quite hoppy. And I'm not really like into a lot of bitterness. So that's not really me. But there you go. There's really an IPA category that's anything for anybody. It's known for experimentation. Brewers are continuously innovating with different hop varieties and brewing techniques and ingredient additions. So you can see a mix and match of a lot of IPA styles. Yeah. But that being said, it, it really goes well with those data trends. As we've seen that trend of the IPA really rising the past few years, we sometimes need to delve deeply into the data trends and see how it progresses and how can we learn from it. So that's the fourth step, data trends. Yeah, also IPAs are very trendy, or they used to be. I think back in probably 2000, oh gosh, probably like 2008, 10 is when they started to really take off, I think. like, yeah. But that was like the cool thing to do. If you, if you drank beer, it was, oh, you got to try this IPA, you got to try this guy. But for observability, one of the things that we get asked a lot is the historical data that we are collecting around that metadata of the, the, the pipelines and data sets that we're interacting with. And so if anyone were to go to, they were to go to DataBand's website or go to IBM's website, you'll probably see a lot of different graphs that we have that show certain things. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that we do, and this is a big question that people get asked, which is do you track and keep track of the historical metadata that you're collecting around pipeline runs, data set interactions, operations, so that we can be aware of what does right look like and how do we get back to that? So if you had like a data set issue or data incident or pipeline incident that happened four weeks ago and it came up again, or if you see this kind of, let's say like this CO curve of, okay, the pipeline ran and then it failed and it ran and failed. Okay. 25% of the time we have a pipeline that's failing. What's going on here? And so the trends aspect is to say, okay, if everything's running good, you, you got it running well, it's actually running on time. Schema changes are going well. Okay, great. But what happens if like you start to see a deviation in the trend of how that's been performing over time? And how can you then go back and look at what a, a correct pipeline looked like, do some analysis around that to see how can we get back to that? Mm-hmm. And so that's where people love the ability to see all that historical data in one place and analyze those trends over time to see where they went wrong and how they can get back to a better engineering practice with their pipelines. And are you aware of any potential pitfalls that organizations should avoid in, in this step? This one is just like to not, this goes back to the, I think the very beginning thing, which is if you're not, you, you can't tr- track, you can't track the trends of things you're not monitoring. And so if you're, if you don't have any type of trend analysis in place and you're going to forget to see what happened back in the day, like what happened when we first ran this pipeline. So 
I'd always say that this is where you're getting into the more analytics part of the platform of what observability mm-hmm. can do because it's tracking all that data to then give you the visualizations with histograms or just pure out dashboards around, hey, this is we've got it. We've got to make sure that we're going back to the roots of why this pipeline ran correctly. So many times people will just build pipelines and they deploy them and, and take off. And if you're not tracking how that's performing over time, you have no KPI to measure yourself. So I would say you got to have KPIs for your pipelines. And the way you have KPIs for your pipelines is to view those KPIs over and over again and the trends of those over again to make sure you're always on track to be better at those different pipelines that are executing. And so we had a customer, they had, they had, they had, I think they had something like 60% of their pipelines, 60% of the time, they had at least like one issue a week, something like that. Like it was like... Mm-hmm. Every time it ran about 60%, there was an issue, right? They didn't understand like what that, what those pipelines were, how they were operating over time because it would just run and they had no, they had no historical records of like how it was executing. And they plugged in data band. They could see, okay, here's how our deep learning pipelines are running consistently. Now we know when it fails, like what the problem was. And then that helps you get better at fixing the more upstream issues before it comes to downstream. So Having that visualization and data that you're we're collecting with that metadata helps you understand the trends over time and helps you get back to where you want to you want to be headed with your KPIs. Nice. All right, one second here. I have a question from where are you? Where are you? It's from X. I, I still can't get used to like saying X. Oh yeah, First right. Twitter. But they're wondering if you can discuss the role of data trends in shaping the future trajectory of data analytics and business intelligence. Okay. Um, data trends itself or uh, monitoring trend uh, data trends within observability, I guess. I, I would assume, yeah, within data observability. Yeah, that would be more on the topic. I think I'll talk, I can talk about trends of where I would say observability is going, if that's what I think the question is possibly. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. yeah, let me get into that. Sorry. Sometimes questions don't come over great if, uh, over chat, but yeah. So the trends that we see, one is tying more and more into the transformation layer. That's one thing we've, most of the time when we talk about these things, we're talking about ingestion, orchestration, transformation layers, getting into deeper things like DBT, anything that's doing any of those types of transformations and monitoring those. So we have a solution that hooks into DBT where you can see all of the different aspects of the jobs, the tests, the models that you're doing, and really those back within a broader scope of, let's say, you kicked it off with an airflow pipeline and went through a Spark process, and now you're transforming something in a Snowflake warehouse with mm-hmm. DBT. We see that a trend in, in tying into not just the warehouse layer, obviously, with the with observability, but the kind of the end-to-end connection with all these different data. We see that a lot. One, the other one is streaming. So a lot of people are getting into to streaming and versus traditional batch batch processes. So that's another one tying into things like Kafka and Confluence and and, and things like that. We're also seeing, I think, a push towards everyone's doing this right now, but the push more and more to workloads in the cloud and having a production instance of observability within your production pipelines is becoming more and more critical. I think people view data observability as like this, I would say nice to have right now versus mission critical. I think that's going to change very quickly, especially being on things like the uh, Gartner hype cycle for data management and data fabric. So I think observability is going to become more and more a part of the 
critical nature of moving data in your organization. And the last one I would say is more and more companies are starting to look at observability as a lens or a pillar of, let's say, governance and data quality. And so when we talk to customers a lot of times, they're trying to understand how can I factor in observability, something I really need into this overall thing that maybe a CDO cares about or my VP cares about. They may care about data quality and data governance, but observability is something they don't understand. What mm-hmm. is that? So tying that more into a data quality discussion and governance discussion, we're seeing more and more both on the vendor side of, of partners that we talked about, partnering with things like governance tools and catalog tools. And then also just, I think in the literature that's coming out more and more is going to be on the observability plus governance and cataloging and quality as the the right approach to it. I appreciate how well you're explaining things after four beers. Part, part, part beers. Part beers. (laughs) Sure, sure. Hopefully I did not drink all of these. That would be wild. (laughs) Within how long we've been going for? 50 minutes. Yeah, that'd be really bad. I don't know if I would be able to function the rest of the day. So Ananda (laughs) is demanding more beer. So let's move on to the last one. This is the sour. So I'm not going to lie. This is my least favorite beer. (laughs) Sorry about Uh, that. By far. And the reason is because I feel like I'm drinking like a Jolly Rancher. Mm -hmm. And so this one here, what do I have? This is, uh, it's called Rapturous. And it's three taverns. It's a raspberry sour ale. Okay. So, yeah. Mine is from Granville Island, which is just like a block away from me. And it's a peach sour. So I'm, I'm okay. betting on the peach flavor more than the sourness. Yeah. Though I don't mind the sour. So I'm the opposite of you. I don't mind it. I've always had even like more sour fruits when I was a kid. Okay, my, mine is not up. doesn't have that pucker uh, feeling. Mine's very sour. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, it's going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is so, Kate, my least favorite beers are sour beers. This is, and this beer is from Three Taverns. It's in Atlanta. They make really good beer. This is nothing against them. They make really good beer. I just, uh, yeah. I just don't like sours. I, and they have really good IPAs. They, they make some really cool beers, like that are stouts and Christmas type ales and things like that. But yeah, I'm not a sour it, person. It's a love or hate relationship. I think you either really like it or you just don't. For sure. Yeah. The interesting thing that it, it apparently it's quite complex to make. Which my initial thought was that oh, huh. it's easy. They just I don't know let it go bad or something. The, the same guy I was talking to about the day up in a, uh, up in a brewery close to my house, he was saying that they tried to do uh, seltzers and he was saying it turned out terrible. He was like, it, he's like, seltzers are really hard to do. And I okay. wonder if it's the same thing with sours. So um, hold let's just to clarify about seltzer, because in, in New York, a seltzer is like a soda, like oh. a water, carbonated water. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I meant alcoholic seltzers. All right. You know, that way. Yeah. So it basically like be like a LaCroix, but with alcohol in it, something infused with vodka or whatever. But he was saying that it was really hard to make them. So they came out tasting Dorito chips mm-hmm. at one point. They tried to do a lime one. It turned out terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's- okay. So do you feel like it heightened your senses? You became more alert as you had that sourness in your mouth? 
I guess so, man. I, I'm not. I'm, okay. I take. A, I took a very small sip of this because I'm trying to make a segue here, Ryan. That's what All I'm right. asking. I feel I'm that alert. I'm yes, presenting. Alert. Yeah, yeah that need to be vigilant for and, and get that dynamic approach to really tracking data to its final destination. Yeah, and sometimes maybe even I don't know, uncovering some unexpected insights along the way too. On to the final step: data access. Can you just talk a little bit about that evolving landscape of data access and? how maybe yeah. it's even affecting data observability. Why is that important to be the final step? Yeah, so I think data access, this is where it gets into two ways of view data access. So the first is like the more traditional way, which is, hey, I want to control the amount of data that certain groups get access to with privacy and security and rules and things like that, which is very much like what a solution like IBM Knowledge Catalog would do very, very when I'm talking about access, I'm really talking about more of impact analysis and access and lineage together, which is if we gave the data to somebody at the very end, okay, can we tell a story of how that data evolved from the pipeline all the way to consumption in like a lineage format or impact analysis format? So okay. we understand the downstream impacts. And so there's a lot of ways you can do that in observability. What, what we do it is we do, we, we basically do automated data lineage and impact analysis dependent on the data sets and pipelines that are automatically connected together. So if a pipeline interacts with another pipeline, that data set gets passed to another pipeline. We infer those relationships and automatically build a lineage graph for you. And at the same time, it, let's say that there was an issue within that, you can actually go and see visually everything that went on during that process and pinpoint exactly where that pipeline failed and then how that's going to impact downstream other things that we know it's going to be connected to and delivered to. And so our lineage is more of an automated impact analysis and visualization in that way versus other lineage solutions will be more kind of the business level or technical level lineage where um, something that observability tools, they don't do that exact type of lineage and data access. That'd be something more for either a traditional lineage solution, something like Manta or IBM Knowledge Catalog that does the data access portion. All that to say is observability does have a role in this, and it's really trying to tell that story of where the data is flowing all the way end to end, and then telling you exactly where those issues occur with an individual or root cause analysis format. Got it. Uh, Rajat is, is wondering, what is a honeypot? How does it work? And Roger, from my limited understanding, because I'm not an expert in data security here, but think of it as this, this decoy system or database. Sometimes people even, or organizations, even set up a whole duplicate environment. And that's just to lure in cyber attackers in order to detect, deflect, and study those hacking attempts that they're like trying to employ. And yeah, I don't know, Ryan, if you want to add anything there. No, that sounds good to me. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that description, but that was good. <laughs> Do you sometimes provide with DataBand? Have you had any use cases for honeypots on monitoring that data access or like setting up the pipelines for it? Or Yeah, not with DataBand specifically, but IBM has a whole suite of IBM data fabric solutions that, yeah. that tie into this very well. Again, IBM Knowledge Catalog and Cloudback for Data are solutions that are like that. They're very good. Yeah, the, I see a question from somebody just asking about advisable to give data consumers freedom to access open data sets and let them do data quality assessment on their own. Probably not, but I know that there's ways to control the levels of access that you have and give to them. 
And also there's ways to do data quality scorecards that allow them to, in the system at least, tell you the level of data quality the tool is inferring based off of these certain data sets. And so that way you can either go in and look at the way the, the way that the augmented data quality solution is doing that. Mm-hmm. Again, something like IBM knowledge catalog or how, and then you can also do a manual intervention in that as well to assess that. So it's not either or I would say, but definitely I, I wouldn't, uh, I don't think any, I think anytime you're talking about giving access to domain experts just blatantly or sorry, a, a carte blanche and allowing them to do certain things and assess it on their own, you could run into this issue with manual biases versus the, the way the system is inferring how the data quality is scored. Got it. And can you talk more about really how IBM data band really facilitates that effective data access management? So with IBM DataBand, we control certain views that you can see within different pipelines that are part of organizations and data sets, again, with the metadata. But for IBM DataBand, that's, this is not an area where we are controlling the data access, data privacy that goes on. So that's where, again, I go back to the thing I mentioned very you know, earlier, which was there's a reason why a lot of observability solutions are partnering with governance solutions and catalog solutions. because that's a part of the question that gets brought up if you want a full suite. And so mm-hmm. that's why you see a lot of these, I would say, VC-backed companies that are specializing in cataloging or data discovery or governance. They're partnering with a lot of other vendors and observability. And so for, for us, with, with DataBand, it's that our partner would be IBM Knowledge Catalog, which is a catalog solution, governance solution, and quality solution for more enterprise needs. And then we tie into that by giving the observability on the left end, and then they can deal with a lot of the data quality issues that you would primarily be used to at the resting level, lake house level, warehouse level, and so on. Awesome. All right, let's do a quick recap on the five uh, steps. First one is that pipeline execution, then pipeline latency, data sanity, data trends, and we end with data access. Yep. Ryan, did you have a favorite beer out of the five that you had? I think I liked this this dinosaur beer a lot. Yeah, this is a pale ale. I've had that one before. It's pretty good. Pseudo Sue, pale ale. It's good. It was really good. Again, it's very heavy because I didn't drink hardly any of this. <laughs> I think I need to go back to drinking my non-alcoholic beer. Right. Get some work done. Yeah. So. Good plan. Thanks for being on. Thanks everybody for all your questions and feedback. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks, George. Cheers, everyone.